This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Thank you all for attending the Rand Monthly Congressional Briefing today on the H1N1 pandemic Lessons Learned from the City's Readiness Initiative. My name is Christy Anderson. I'm sure some of you have seen my name and email, um, and I am the Health Legislative Analyst at RAND. The work we'll focus on today is part of a larger body of public health preparedness research conducted by the Public Health Preparedness Program at RAND. Today's briefing is being recorded. A video will be available online at RAND.org, or you can listen to today's discussion by subscribing to the RAND's Congressional Briefing Series podcast on iTunes. Given the attention H1N1 is receiving from Congress and policymakers, this report is especially timely. The report provides one of the first rigorous assessments of whether federal investments can improve readiness in the nation's communities. The study also has broader implications for pandemic influenza and other federal public health preparedness programs. Today's presenter is Christopher Nelson, who is a senior political scientist at RAND. He is currently leading a set of projects to develop performance evaluation systems and operational standards for responses to large-scale public health emergencies, such as pandemic influenza and bioterrorism. Other recent projects in the area of public health preparedness have focused on applications of quality improvement methods of rare event phenomena, the role of intergovernmental structure in preparedness, and strategies for designing program guidance. And with that, I hand it over to Dr. Nelson. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Christy, and uh, good afternoon to the rest of you, and thank you for uh, uh, spending some time with us this afternoon. It's often said that all emergency response, whether it be to key, uh, hurricanes, bioterrorist attacks, uh, uh, or pandemics indeed, is local. Uh, and as Christy mentioned today, the, the focus of today's study really is on the question of <clears throat> whether federal policy, the kinds of things that happen in this building, can actually improve uh, preparedness at the local level where it matters the most. Uh, the study focuses on one particular program called the City's Readiness Initiative, or the CRI, uh, but as Christy mentioned, we believe that the study has broader implications to this uh, fall's pandemic influenza uh, uh, outbreak and, and the response and, and indeed onto uh, other threat scenarios. Uh, before uh, getting into the study and its implications for H1N1, let me just step back for just a moment <clears throat> and provide a little bit of background. Uh, flu, as, as you well know, is, is far from the only thing that we need to be worrying about. And in fact, uh, over the last uh, decade, there have been a whole string of events uh, from the anthrax attacks right in, 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 at the na nation's capital uh, to Katrina uh, to foodborne outbreaks, uh, events and incidents that have placed public health emergency preparedness at the top of the national agenda. Uh, and in addition to that, of course, is the ongoing and lingering threat of nuclear, biological, and chemical terrorism, which is something that was very uh, uh, starkly illustrated in the recent Graham Commission report. Now, as you, uh, I'm sure you know, the federal government has responded uh, to these threats with a fairly substantial investment uh, beginning in 1999 uh, and uh, continuing uh, this fall with uh, over $7 billion investment uh, in the uh, expected fall response to the H1N1 virus. And uh, these funds have paid for things like stockpiling medications, hiring staff, uh, training and exercising plans, uh, and so on and so forth. But in spite of these federal investments, as I said a moment ago, preparedness really needs to happen at the local level, at the point of the spear, if you will. Uh, and our 
public health system is very decentralized in this system. Most authority resides at the state level, uh, and much of that authority is in turn delegated to the local level. All told, when you count federal, state, and local health departments, we have over 2,600 governmental health departments in this country. And each one of those health departments needs to coordinate with a wide array of partners, ranging from emergency management agencies uh, to private businesses and hospitals, uh, citizen groups, and, and the like. So on the one hand, we have a world that is increasingly interconnected, not only economically and culturally, but also epidemiologically, as H1N1 demonstrates. But at the same time, we have a very decentralized system which creates the challenge uh, for the federal government figuring out how to mount a coordinated and rapid national response uh, in, in, the, uh, in the face of uh, very rapidly emerging threats. So uh, it, really, I think there, there are two questions that we want to address. First of all, is, are these federal efforts having an impact at the local level? And in spite of some fairly promising anecdotes, and, and Christy mentioned this in, in the introduction, we really don't have much evidence on that. I think another very relevant question as we enter uh, what's expected to be a very rough flu season is to what extent do these investments in things like bioterrorism have spillovers, positive spillover effects to things like influenza and other kinds of threats. Now with that as background, let me return back to where I started with the City's Readiness Initiative or the CRI and tell you just a little bit about that. Uh, the CRI was created in 2004. Uh, with a clear focus on improving metropolitan areas or cities' ability to dispense life-saving medications in response to a large-scale outdoor uh, anthrax attack. Uh, and that includes such things as requesting medications from something called the Federal Strategic National Stockpile, which is a large cache of medical countermeasures from antibiotics to airway supplies. Uh, inform the public of the need to come to various places to pick up those uh, med medical countermeasures uh, and ultimately to dispense those medical countermeasures, uh, at least in the form of uh, uh, at least antibiotics, to the local population within 48 hours of the decision to do so. So in a place like the National Capital Region, that's 4 million people in 48 hours, or if, if my math is correct, uh, a little over 80,000 people per hour on average. Now the CRI originally back in 2004 was created to address 21 of the largest cities, but over the years it's grown to cover 72 of the largest metropolitan areas in the country, uh, amounting <coughs> to about 57% of the population. Uh, if you look at that map, you'll very quickly realize that there is at least one CRI site in every state, and several states like California and Texas have multiple CRI sites. And the CRI program has four main components to it. First of all, it is focused on a, on a specific planning scenario, which is a large-scale outdoor aerosolized anthrax attack. So think of somebody flying a crop duster uh, over, a, over a city and spraying anthrax uh, um, uh, 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 slurry, uh, and that's the scenario. Uh, the second part is dedicated funding. Uh, so this is funding that is above and beyond other all-hazards funding, that is funding that, that is uh, uh, designed to address preparedness for the full array of, of incidents. Uh, and this has been, uh, uh, and to give you an idea, this is $58 million in fiscal year 2009. Uh, third, technical assistance. Uh, CDC provides direct technical assistance not only to the states but to local health departments, which is different from its standard practice. And then finally, assessment and accountability. Uh, and in a couple of moments, we'll talk about something called the TAR or the Technical Assistance Review Tool. 
Now, back in 2007, the CDC asked RAND to conduct an initial independent evaluation of the CRI program with the goal of addressing the question, to what extent has the program, this federal program, really improved state and local readiness to distribute and dispense medications? Uh, another motivation was uh, really to consider the, the role of targeted programs like this in the context of the broader national all-hazards approach. Uh, where we tend to fund fairly generic capabilities uh, that are designed to apply to a wide range of scenarios. And then, of course, the other question, which I've already intimated, is to what extent uh, can the results or the impact of one program uh, focused on, on something like anthrax apply to uh, another scenario like influenza? So for the remainder of the talk, I want to do four things. First of all, I want to tell you just a little bit about our approach to the, uh, to the evaluation. Second of all, I want to highlight some of the findings uh, from the assessment. I want to talk a little bit about some implications that the study might have for the coming H1N1 response, and then I want to conclude with some recommendations for policy. Now, before we get into it, I thought it might be helpful to provide you with a, kind of a quick sense of what a CRI plan looks like, and I think this will help you to get a, an appreciation uh, for the methods that we used and, and to interpret some of the findings. Uh, so essentially, the, uh, the, the heart of a uh, CRI plan is usually something uh, that we'll call a dispensing site. Sometimes they're called pods or, or points of dispensing, but uh, for, for today we'll call them dispensing sites. This is where people actually need to go in order to get their medications. Uh, and in a large city, there might be as many as 100 to 200 of these sites. Now, uh, material comes to these sites from the uh, CDC Federal National Stockpile, which is represented in that square up there. Uh, those uh, dispensing sites, sites are staffed by public health care workers and other volunteers who dispense the medications, uh, who do public information, who run warehouses, and a whole host of other activities. And then, of course, the public is a critical actor here. They need to be able to, to, to show up uh, uh, at a timely, uh, in a timely fashion uh, to dispensing sites in order to get their medications. Now, in some cities and in some plans, uh, this dispensing site model is being supplemented uh, with plans for delivery at home by the Postal Service. Uh, and still other sites are uh, making plans to dispense medications to closed-in po populations like prisoners, uh, people in nursing homes directly at those sites, thus minimizing the strain on these public large-scale dispensing sites. Now, on to the approach that we used. And I think generally we find that there are two big challenges uh, in evaluating large-scale homeland security or public health preparedness programs. And the first is, what do you look at? What do you observe? Typically, when we evaluate the impact of a health intervention, like a, a diabetes care regimen, we look at people who have been exposed to it and we see what the impact is on health outcomes. Well, you know, fortunately, we don't have many activations of the strategic national stockpile because we don't have many large-scale public health emergencies. And so we really can't look at the impact of the program on health outcomes. Now, another thing that we often do when we evaluate public health preparedness is to look at whether performance has improved because of the program based on uh, exercises. Uh, in the military, they often call them live-fired exercises, where you put health departments and their partners through fairly realistic scenarios. Uh, now, I, I think that is a promising approach. The problem is, up until recently, we really haven't had good standard performance measures to use to evaluate performance on those exercises. And that's something that, that Rand has been working with CDC on in recent years, and we expect that to be available in the coming months. Uh, but for now, uh, or for the purposes of this study, those data were not available. 
And so for the purposes of this study, we looked at CRI's impact on what we'll call capacities. Uh, so those are people, equipment, plan, uh, personnel, uh, training. And, uh, and, and so the question is, to what extent has CRI improved these capacities? Now throughout, I, I want you to keep in mind that there are limits to this approach. Uh, evaluating uh, a site's uh, uh, pre preparedness by focusing on plans and equipment is a little bit like evaluating my abilities as a musician by asking how many instruments I own. Having instruments doesn't mean you can play them. Having plans, having personnel doesn't mean that you can actually use them effectively in a response. But on the other hand, they are important, critical, necessary conditions. Uh, they are the only data that we had available at the time, and they do provide an important picture on uh, the effectiveness of CRI. Now, the second challenge that you have in any evaluation is how do you decide whether any improvements that you see were caused by the program, in this case CRI, and not caused by something else. Uh, again, to go back to the medical example, uh, typically we like to use randomized controlled trials. We randomly assign people to a treatment and control group, and we see whether the treatment group got better. Well, clearly we can't randomly assign cities to treatment and control conditions. But what we can do is to ask whether changes in capacities in the CRI cities is different from the non-CRI cities, and whether the earlier entrants, those who have been in the program longer, uh, have seen greater improvements than those who came into the program more recently and have la had less exposure to the program. So it's a little bit like a dose-response curve in medical research. So with those comments about the methods and the approach of the assessment, let me now go on and talk a little bit about some of the key findings from the study. Now, as I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, the study focused on what we call capacities, plans, equipment, training, personnel. And at the top of the slide here, we have some more specific examples of capacities that I just wanted you to be able to look at to get a clear sense of, of what we were asking. And so the questions we asked with, uh, here at the bottom, so to what, uh, does the site have people assigned to perform key activities? Have community partners been identified and assigned clear roles? And so on and so forth. And as I mentioned before, the CDC has this uh, capacity assessment tool. I, I mentioned the TAR a couple of moments ago. Uh, and this assesses sites in 13 key capacities on a scale of 1, 100, 1 to 100, pardon me, and it takes those 13 scales and combines them into a single scale, also going from 1 to 100. And so overall, uh, when we looked at these data, we found that average scores on this assessment increased from 50 to, 100, or 50 to 72 out of 100 after one year in the program. Uh, so clear evidence of improvement at least after one year in the program. And we saw improvement across each of the 13 areas. And so I've got just a few examples up here. Training and exercising from 34 to 64, so fairly impressive. Uh, command and control started out higher, but also ended high, 85 to 93, and so on and so forth. Now, we did see significant variation across the site. Some improved more than others. Some started very high. Others started very low. But on balance, uh, there is very clear evidence of improvement here uh, associated with uh, participation in the program. Now, uh, we would have liked to have stopped here, uh, uh, but unfortunately, uh, as uh, time has passed, this assessment instrument has changed as CDC and others have sought to improve it. And so we were limited in our ability to track changes over a long period of time. And also, the assessment is only given to CRI sites and not to non-CRI sites. And so we had no way of comparing uh, whether uh, uh, these effects were due to CRI or other factors. And so we also conducted a number of uh, in-depth site visits. And I want to tell you uh, a little bit about some of the uh, 
uh, results from those here in the next couple of minutes. First of all, we asked whether CRI has improved partnerships, which you might recall is one of the uh, capacities that I talked about just a moment ago. And fairly consistently, we found that before CRI, partners uh, in emergency management, law enforcement, and, and elsewhere were unaware of each other's plans uh, when it came to dispensing medications. We also found that the extra resources and the technical assistance uh, that came from the CRI program helped uh, public health departments dedicate staff to building those relationships and uh, building aw uh, awareness, mutual awareness of those plans. Uh, now we saw less evidence of these improvements in non-CRI sites and we also saw less evidence in sites that had less time in the program, both of which give us at least a reasonable degree of confidence that these findings were due to CRI and not to some other factors. We also looked at the uh, nature of the plans themselves and found fairly clear evidence that CRI was associated with more specific dispensing plans. And the importance of this is that when you have to stand up a mass dispensing activity very quickly, you need to know exactly what everybody's supposed to do immediately. There is really no time in an anthrax scenario uh, to figure things out. Uh, and so we saw very clear evidence of improvements in the degree of specificity of floor plans, uh, procedures for triaging, shift changes, and things of that nature. Another thing that we found is that CRI appears to be associated with the adoption of more streamlined, high-volume dispensing protocols. In other words, faster ways of getting more medicine to more people in shorter periods of time. And so at the very bottom there, I, I, I realize it is a little bit of an eye test, but I have a, uh, what we will call a regular model for a dispensing site or a point of dispensing. And then we have what we'll call a rapid flow model. Basically, the patient comes in on the left, exits on the right, and what you need to realize is that in the, the model on the left, there are a lot more steps for a patient than there are in the right. And so you see more and more of these rapid flow models uh, being adopted with the uh, advent of CRI. You also, and I intimated this before, you see more, uh, more and more cities arranging for community partners, uh, such as nursing homes and even hotels uh, uh, and uh, prisons to dispense medications to their populations so they don't even have to come to these dispensing sites in the first place. So those are just a few highlights. And uh, just to sum up, what does this all add up to? Well, in spite of the decentralization in the public health system that I talked about, you know, remember the 2,600 state, local, and federal health departments, we see that this federal policy, CRI, seems to have some fairly clear impacts uh, on improving public health preparedness at the community level where it matters the most. Uh, and we see evidence in specific things like staffing, partnerships, equipment, planning, dispensing strategies, and so on and so forth. Now, to go back to a caveat that I issued a couple of minutes ago that I, I think is, is very important is that we yet cannot yet say whether the sites could actually put these plans into action. But on the other hand, what we're seeing is that CRI is creating some of the necessary conditions for that to happen. And so accordingly, one of the key recommendations of the study is that the CRI program be uh, continued based on the strength of this ev evidence but that it be reevaluated after two to three years as this better exercise on, or better data on exercises becomes available and we can start to answer the second question here about whether the program is having an impact on sites ability to execute their plans under realistic conditions. So uh, in addition to asking what the, uh, the, the impacts of CRI were, we also tried to figure out what led to those improvements, thinking that that might have some lessons for the design of other federal programs. And one very clear message from the study is that the program's focus on a single emergency scenario, in this case the anthrax attack, 
was, was uh, key in uh, really focusing people's attention and uh, key in driving a lot of these improvements. And so we concluded from the study that uh, th this approach is a, a reasonable complement to the all hazards approach to planning. Uh, and that uh, the, the program had some success in really forcing people to engage in, in this worst case scenario thinking, this 48 hour anthrax scenario. Another clear finding was that the clear goals and the clear measurements in this assessment tool uh, were very critical in helping sites focus on the, the most critical aspects of preparedness and, and probably are responsible for a lot of the findings that we see. And then finally, the direct technical assistance from CDC to the locals, which as I mentioned before is not something that CDC does in all of its programs, appears to be very important uh, in, in helping to get these uh, changes institutionalized at the local level, and uh, of equal importance in helping to adapt this federal policy to the various conditions that you see on the ground across these 2,600 health departments. And so I think it's fair to say that a one-size-fits-all approach probably doesn't work, but that there are things that uh, federal policy can do to try to abet and aid some adaptation or some customization of those federal approaches to specific communities. Now, what are the implications as we go into the fall flu season, particular, particularly given the expected resurgence of H1N1? And to what extent do these CRI findings and these gains from CRI, to what extent do they apply uh, to flu? Well, the way that uh, we like to think about answering these questions is to imagine that CRI is creating a set of building blocks. And I, and I have two small boys, and so I tend to think of these as, as Legos. Uh, so building partnerships, access to volunteers, those are all things that we talked about. And so the question is, to what extent could those building blocks or those Lego pieces work when we're trying to put together a, a response or preparedness to respond to H1N1? And I think it's very clear that many of these blocks, certainly the ones in red here, do apply quite nicely to H1N1. Uh, building partnerships. Uh, public health does not do anything by itself, anything of significance. Certainly vaccination requires uh, connections with the clinical health system, uh, with community-based organizations, uh, with law enforcement for security, and so on and so forth. Access to volunteers uh, to, to augment public health staff security. Supply chain management, the ability to manage large caches of supplies as they move from one place to the other. Operating warehouses, all of those things I think very clearly apply to H1N1. Uh, the, only or the only clear exception being that when it comes to supply chain management and warehouses, we have to worry about keeping antivirals and, and vaccines cold, which is not something we have to worry quite as much about with other kinds of medications. Now, having said that, there are other building blocks for H1N1 that we don't find in the CRI toolkit, if you will. Uh, and so vaccination is, is one thing that CRI does not cover. Uh, CRI is about handing out antibiotics, handing out pills. Uh, vaccination obviously requires sticking needles into arms. Uh, has different staff requirements. Also, uh, uh, it generally creates more fatigue in, in the staff who are working. So we probably need to have more staff and build in more break time. Uh, and then, of course, as, as you've all no doubt been reading in the newspaper, there is some question about whether the vaccine will get here on time. It looks like the news is getting a little bit better every day as, as, we, as we listen to uh, uh, Secretary Zebelius this morning. Uh, but on the other hand, it seems likely that the flu season will be well underway before uh, the vaccine gets here. And so there are other things such as social distancing, school closures, uh, event cancellations uh, that are going to have to be a very critical part of H1N1 preparedness and that were not covered by the CRI program. 
So the bottom line is that CRI has helped to improve some but not all of the critical capabilities that we need to have in place for H1N1 this fall. Um, CRI has helped to improve, uh, I think where it ha has had a, a huge effect is, is helping health departments and their partners think about how to serve large numbers of people in a very short period of time against this, this sort of worst case doomsday scenario of a 48 hour anthrax campaign. But as I mentioned a moment ago, there are other things, you know, the, the vaccination piece that haven't been covered by CRI. Uh, and then, of course, there are remaining uncertainties uh, uh, in the federal strategy for uh, administering vaccines. That, that's something that, that becomes a little bit clearer over time, uh, but uh, uh, it, it is not yet entirely clear what that looks like. Uh, and then another thing to keep in mind is that typically people get vaccinations from their clinicians, from their, their, uh, from their doctors. But on the other hand, as the flu season ramps up, it's very likely that more people will need to go to their doctor in order to get care uh, because they're ill at the time. And so that could uh, complicate efforts uh, to vaccinate people in uh, normal clinic settings. Let me conclude the briefing with uh, just some broader policy implications. First of all, I think it's important that we consider applying some of the key features and design elements of the CRI program to other uh, programs such as our pandemic influenza programs. Uh, and so while I think the all hazards approach still makes a lot of sense, it seems fairly clear that we should supplement it with programs that, are, that also target specific uh, scenarios. Uh, I think another lesson from the CRI evaluation is that we should consider providing more direct technical assistance from the federal government to locals, not just to the states. Uh, again, as a way to, to, to really help institutionalize those practices and as a way to take national policies, which by their very nature must sort of aim at the average health department and provide mechanisms for customizing them to the, uh, to the exigencies of specific communities and specific health departments. And then I think it would be wise to consider ways that we could shape programs to emphasize the commonalities in these building blocks, the commonalities between an anthrax response uh, and a flu response. Uh, just to be very specific about that. Third, uh, I think one of the important things that CRI has done is to really force us all to think about how we would respond to a worst case. Again, trying to get a pill in, in the mouth of every person in a large metropolitan area within 48 hours. Um, and one of the key issues that, that uh, I think we need to deal with is uh, who will be able to perform vaccinations, assuming that you know, a worst case scenario occurs and we have to do this very quickly. What records would we keep? Would we be willing to, uh, to collect less information about people before we vaccinate them? Uh, how much screening must be done for potential uh, adverse reactions? Uh, I think one thing that the CRI planning process has taught us is that it's important to at least think that through, even if we don't end up having to employ those kinds of strategies. And then finally, I think we need to look at the fall's uh, coming likely outbreak as potentially a very rich uh, opportunity to learn about our response systems. And so we think it's very important that we ensure that we have systems in place to collect data on the performance of the public health system as we go through the next couple of months. Well, that concludes the recorded uh, portion of today's presentation and we'll uh, open the floor for questions and answers from the audience. Thank you.